Today's sermon texts are Acts 6, 1 through 7, and 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 16. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenos, and Nicolaus, the proselyte of, of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a, many great, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now First Timothy. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be each the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. Thank you, Brent. Uh, everybody, uh, again, greetings. We are uh, in an extended series uh, called This Is Us, an extended series called This Is Us. And the goal of this series is to fully acquaint us and cast vision for what we desire to be as a church, what brings us together as a church, our shared values, our shared hopes, and our shared dreams for what God can do inside of these walls, uh, metaphorically speaking, and then outside of these walls in our city through our church. Um, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that our aspiration, one of our aspirations, but maybe our chief aspiration, is that we become the most caring church you've ever interacted with. That's what our desire is. We want to care for you well, really well. But there's a catch with being the most caring church you've ever heard of. The catch is this. In order for us to accomplish that, we all have to care. We all have to provide care. We all have to give care. Once we fashion ourselves as consumers of care, we will cease to be a caring church. There can't be only a demand to receive care. There must be an inner compulsion to give care. If we don't have B in what I just listed, the inner compulsion to give care, we are going to be a really, really selfish church. We don't want to be a selfish church. We want to be a church that glorifies Jesus and brings joy to all people. We want to be that kind of a church. And we think that can be done partly 
through being really, really caring. Today, I'm starting a two-week mini-series inside of our overall series on the subject of deacons. Deacons. Uh, For the first time in a long time, we are going to be establishing formally next week uh, uh, our own deacon ministry at this church. For a long time at our church, deacons were trustees of our assets and our property and our money. But about five and a half years ago, we didn't have any more assets and money, and so we had to, uh, that pretty much uh, dealt with the need for having deacons and trustees, you know. Uh, Now we're in a place, now we're in a place where we want to reinvent that aspect of our ministry and begin to do deacons exactly according to what the scriptures say. I'm not saying deacons can't be involved in finances and those other things, but practically speaking, uh, specifically, the scriptures have a set of responsibilities for deacons, and the deacons in our church, their ministry directly relates to and impacts every one of you who calls renewal home. We relate to every one of you. This is not a couple of weeks of administrative preaching, of house cleaning. This is a couple of weeks of casting vision on how we want to care for you well in your moments of greatest need and rejoice for you in your moments of greatest joy and also how the structure of deacons or the diaconate can help to magnify Jesus in our lives. And I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll get to that part in just a minute, the really good part. So uh, I, want to, I, want you, I want us to remember that. Our goal is that we become a really, really, really caring church. Now, there is a story in the Bible that really comes to my mind when I think about our need for deacons. It's a story of Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. And I swear, if I ever have another kid, I'm going to name him Jethro, if it's a boy. I love that name, Jethro. And it's in Exodus 18. Now, just to set up some context here, Exodus 18 comes after, obviously, 17 chapters of Exodus. And in those first 17 chapters of Exodus... It has been a fast-paced, fast-moving story. God appears to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, He tells Moses, I am calling you to go preach a message of liberation to my people and mainly to Pharaoh and and call Pharaoh to let my people go, the Hebrews who were in captivity. Tell him, let them go. And for, gosh, 12 or 13 chapters, what we see is one plague or one judgment after another being unleashed on Pharaoh and Egypt because he refuses to let God's people go into freedom so they can be formed into God's worshiping community that will bring the blessings of the gospel to the whole face of the earth. He refuses to let them go. And so God unleashes these terrible plagues on Egypt. And then on their way out of Egypt, they've already plundered the Egyptians. God said, go to all your Egyptian neighbors and say, hey, can I have all of your money? And they will say yes. And they're like, okay. And so they went and said, can we have all of your money? And they just started handing over jewels and and all that kind of stuff, their treasures. And they left Egypt and they crossed miraculously the Red Sea. And then after God finally deals with the Egyptians who were chasing them into the Red Sea that has become dry land in front of them, they find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea in the Arabian Peninsula. And for the first time, it dawns on them. Wait a second. We don't have any houses. We don't have any food. 
We don't have a formal military. How are we going to protect ourselves? Where are we going to get water? And then God, for the next few chapters, takes them through faith tests where he miraculously provides food and water for them, such as Moses. He told Moses, strike the rock, and then water began to gush out of this rock. Enough water, apparently, that it nourished, um, it says 600,000 men. So there was probably around a million, two million people in total that God nourished when Moses struck the rock with his staff. It's an incredible, fast-paced, fast-moving story. And then we hit the brakes when we get to Exodus 18 because all of a sudden the people are living together in the wilderness. They don't know how to get along. They're fighting. They're in strife. And they all start coming to Moses saying, Moses, here's my issue with this person. Here's my issue with this person. Tell us what to do. Moses feels overwhelmed by this. Overwhelmed. He needs to learn how to give out justice to this new community and care for them well. But he doesn't know how. And this is what Exodus 18, verses 17 through 23 says. I love this. Moses' father-in-law, who was not a Hebrew who worships Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. <laughs> He's a person who is not. You would consider him maybe a pagan. And he says to Moses, what, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. What thing? Constantly ruling and adjudicating issues of strife between people, constantly having to do that. It's too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, the laws that he's about to give Moses over the next few chapters. You shall warn them about these statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Now remember, the Israelites have been in Egyptian captivity for 400 years. They had a faint memory of who their God was and who their ancestors were, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it was really foggy. And they needed to be brought out into the wilderness so that God could reform them and shape them into his redeemed, saved people. That was Moses' responsibility as the leader of Israel, to be the mouthpiece of God that would establish them in the word of God and reshape them as a renewed people. And so that's what his responsibility was. Uh, Let's see. So... Uh, Verse 21, moreover, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, Moses, but any small matter they shall decide themselves so it will be easier for you. And they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all, that's my favorite part of this. You will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. That's another really good part. That the leaders endure and that the people live in peace. That the leaders may endure and the people 
coexist, live together as a community in peace. Now, I know this is not necessarily, it's not at all a deacon text, but it does address the burden that many pastors bear, which is, and here's the burden that a lot of pastors bear. And I don't say this with any malice. I don't say this with any uh, uh, malice in my heart or meanness, or you know, I'm, I'm not pointing this statement at anyone. This is a, this is, uh, you ask any pastor if this is true about their ministry and the expectations put on them, and the vast majority will say yes. And the pressure and the burden that many pastors live under is this, to be emotionally and physically present in every single person's troubles. To be emotionally and physically present in every single person's troubles. Now, I'll tell you, I wish I could. The problem is, is that no human being has the ability to do that. Only Jesus does. Only Jesus can do that, the perfect man. And even then, Jesus knew his limitations, which is why he ascended to the right hand of God and sent the Holy Spirit, who is omnipresent. Jesus, in his bodily form, could not minister to every saint that would come to faith in Christ. He couldn't. Not in his bodily form. But in his spiritual form, the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Galatians, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ ministers and comforts and brings peace and conviction of sin. All those wonderful things leads us in truth, every one of us who calls upon the name of Jesus. Every one of us. But interestingly, the Spirit isn't enough. I'm not saying the Spirit doesn't have the ability to minister to everyone. I'm not saying that the Spirit has some sort of limitation on his power when I say he's not enough. It's a limit that God put on himself because even though the Holy Spirit could come and minister to each one of us where we are by ourselves, God somehow, a professor once used the term, divinely anointed limitations in a class that I was sitting in. There are divinely anointed limitations that God has embraced. Why? Because his plan isn't just to give each of us individually peace. His plan is just like the Israelites in the wilderness to establish a community of saints that loves one another and is devoted to one another and is an example of what the kingdom of God looks like to everyone else in the world. And so in order to pull that off, it can't just be me and the Holy Spirit in my Bible. It's got to be me and the Holy Spirit in my Bible and you. God uses you to minister to me, and God uses me to minister to you. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. So God has divinely orchestrated the ministry of deacons for a particular purpose. It's to bring relief to leadership and make sure that the people of God are ministered to well. And that's the goal behind all of this. It's not to, you know, give me more video game and nap time during the week. I know all y'all think that's what I do during the week. So it's not that. It's not that at all. Um, I mean, you know, once I got through every version of Angry Birds, I was like, what's the point of life? You know, but, um, but it's so that we can all minister to one another well. I'm getting ahead of myself again. So as a pastor, I'm expected to be involved emotionally and physically in the troubles of every person. Now, let's fast forward to the New Testament. In the book of Acts, Brent read this text a moment ago, in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we have a similar problem taking place. The people of God have just been formed by the Holy Spirit. 
It's an incredible experience. There's 120 disciples who were following Jesus. And when Jesus ascended, there, there, were, there were these 120 gathered together. And when they gathered together, Jesus said, you're the church. Wait before you do anything. You pray. And when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that's when you get busy living mission. And so they waited. And they prayed. And this incredible thing happened in Acts chapter 2. They're praying, and all of a sudden these tongues of fire appear over their heads. And this mighty rushing wind blows through the room that they're sitting in. And then they begin to speak in languages that they didn't know. Languages all spoken around the Roman Empire, all around the Mediterranean. And so all of the Jews who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost the celebration of Pentecost, they were from all over the known world. They were from as far as Egypt. They were from uh, Greece. They were from all over the known world. They're walking around and they're hearing these disciples who have a strong Galilean accent speak in all of these various languages. And what they're hearing them say is they're giving glory to God. And so all of these people from all over the world are hearing in their own mother tongue these Jewish natives giving glory to God. And that day, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. It was amazing. Mission began to be on the move. And so for the next few chapters, you see this. The church is on the move. Rapid, uh, amazing things are happening. Miracles. Uh, um, disciples are expressing their faith in bold and courageous ways. And then you get to Acts chapter 6, and we have to slam on the brakes again because this new community, formerly Jewish, who are now learning to live together as followers of Jesus, they're learning how to live together. And there's strife. And just to show you that just because the Spirit is powerfully present doesn't mean that everything's going to be awesome. Abject racism begins to manifest in the community. The same community that had tongues of fire on their heads, the same community that experienced the mighty rushing wind, the same community that talked in tongues, all that stuff, this community experienced abject racism, and here's how it went down. These people were some of them very poor. Some theologians say that because Jews were spread out all over the known world, many of them desired to come back and worship and live and die and be buried in Judea, which is like this, the region of Jerusalem. It's like Shelby County to Memphis. They wanted to come back and be buried there. Well, so many families, some theologians and historians say, were coming back to Judea at this time that when they were dying, when the husbands were dying, it was leaving an enormous amount of widows to be cared for by the church. Well, Jerusalem and Israel under the Roman Empire had no sort of welfare program, Medicare, universal... I mean, nothing like that existed. If you... If you lost your means to survive, you lost your means to survive and you depended entirely on your family. Well, here's another problem. Many of these widows who had come to Christ where they would have been taken care of by their families because they were Christians were rejected and disowned by their Jewish families. And so the church felt the enormous burden to make sure that these women had a roof over their heads and food to eat. 
And so they're collecting food from everyone and people are giving money and they're bringing all their stuff to the apostles so they can make sure that everybody can live and survive. And as they're doing this, and as these goods and assets and food are being distributed, there are people who are intentionally not giving food to the women, the widows, who are Jewish nationals. They're overlooking the Greek-speaking Jews. These are people who are not ethnically Jewish. These are people who came to Christ and became proselytes to Judaism, converts to Judaism. And when they became converts to Judaism and they began to intermingle with ethnic Jews, they were looked down upon as not being as legit as the rest of the Jews. And so they were neglected. They were neglected. And the apostles had a big task in front of them. We've got to make sure that we preach God's word, that we pray, that we proclaim God's word. We don't have time to wait tables and deal with this kind of silliness and this selfishness. And so they decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise up seven dudes. And these guys have to have a good reputation. They've got to be full of the spirit, full of wisdom. And these dudes are going to make sure that these ladies are going to be served. Now, it doesn't specifically use the word deacon in this text, in the original language, but it's possible, it's probable that this is where our understanding of deacons comes from. This is the first iteration or the first time deacons functioned in the church. It was to make sure that people were cared for. It was very pastoral. It was very pastoral, but in a physical sense. They made sure that their needs were being met. Leaders of the church must be devoted to prayer and the teaching of God's word. That doesn't mean that leaders should not be rolling up their sleeves and visiting the hospitals and and, and, uh, spending time with people when they're hurting. I like the model that we saw in Exodus 18. Moses and his leaders uh, 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 functioned and ruled and led in some of the weighty, more hairy matters that they had to deal with, the heavier matters, the big matters. But then they had people below them at different levels who could lead the people and minister to the people. And that made sure that the whole community of saints was spiritually nourished. This is the same type of structure that we need in our church. Because I really do believe that our church is going to grow. I really do believe that. I do. I believe that. Um, God has taught us a lot in our wilderness over the last five and a half years. And when I say wilderness, I don't use that in a negative sense. The wilderness is where God fashions his people. It's where he reforms them and reshapes them so that they look more like him, so that when they go into the promised land, they really do represent God as image bearers. I see the last five and a half years over at Ridgeway Middle School as a beautiful wilderness for our church, shaping us and helping us to understand who we really are so that as we root down in East Memphis and minister to the various suburbs and the parts of the city that are hurting, either hurting with affluence or hurting with poverty, we know who we are and we minister well and we minister deeply. This is one reason why I want our church to be the most caring church you've interacted with. Too many people who've come to faith in Jesus love Jesus, but they don't like the church. They went and interacted with the church, and they couldn't connect. They didn't feel loved. They didn't feel pursued. They didn't feel valued and validated. I want people to feel that at our church. Now, I can't make that happen, but I can sure pray that it'll happen and call all of us together to work toward that end. But I'm powerless in making that happen beyond prayer and proclamation. I need you to own this with me and our elders. I need you to own it too. Um, so these men were appointed for that. Now, at this point, I'm going to ask us all to embrace humility. Humility. And I'm going to start with me. 
Jesus said that the kingdom can only be penetrated by people who take the posture of a child. Needy, ignorant, not already having things figured out. We must have the posture of a child if we're going to really be a part of God's kingdom. We've got to be teachable. We've got to know who we are. We've got to know that we're broken and we need Jesus. And so I'm asking us to all walk in humility here. And I'll begin with me because one of the biggest things that I've learned over the last five and a half years of our wilderness, our beautiful wilderness, was that I can't make all of you happy. I can't make you all happy. I tried to for a long time. You were an idol in my life. If I heard that somebody was upset, I didn't sleep for a week. If I heard that somebody moved on, it took me a long time to get over that. You were an idol to me. It's because I trusted too much in myself than in Jesus. So I'm learning to live in that tension of caring well, but not over-caring. Not allowing your crisis to damage my relationship with my children. Because I've made that mistake at times. And my wife. So I'm learning that I can't make you all happy. I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I really can't. And that's been a hard lesson for me to learn. I'm learning that I, can, I cannot do what only the Holy Spirit can do in your life. I can't do that. Or what the church is supposed to do in your life. What the church is supposed to do. Because the reality is, is that nowhere in the scriptures do you see text, you see verses where it says that in every member's crisis, the pastor has to go there. The pastor has to be a part. I don't say this to lecture you or, man, shame anyone here. Um, but I can't be a part of every single story. I can't. But that doesn't mean that I don't love you. It doesn't mean that you're not cared for. We've got to change the narrative. We've got to redeem bad expectations. There have been times in being nine and a half years of serving as a senior pastor where when I didn't show up, it was like no one showed up. Even though an entire community group bought dinner to that person. Even though other pastors looked in at that person in the hospital. Because Chris Bennett wasn't there, it's as if no one came. And here's the thing. That puts too much pressure on me as a lead pastor. But that also neglects and dismisses the beautiful gift of hospitality and service that other members gave to you. Where they took time out of their busy schedules. And they made two meals that night rather than one. One for their family and then one for you who were in the hospital or maybe, uh, maybe at home recuperating from having a baby or getting over some sort of uh, horrible illness or whatever it might be. Again, I don't say this to shame any of us. But I've got to call us to a place of understanding and for us to say, okay, let's agree on this. And this is what we need to agree on. We need to see every single person who loves us in our local church as good as Jesus loving us. If I don't come for some reason, and I'll admit, there have been a few times that I've, I've failed some of you. Some of us have talked about that. Some of us have worked through that in our relationship. And I ho hopefully you can say that I've owned that. But there have been times where people came to you and served you and loved on you and you have to understand something. That person is a manifestation of Jesus Christ in your life. Jesus Christ. It's not nearly as important that Chris Bennett's there. The question is, is Jesus there? 
And Jesus wants to work through his local church, his body of believers, to love you and care for you and serve you. He really does. He really does. And so when that person comes to your door and you have no idea who they are and they brought you a chicken pot pie and they're saying, hey, I heard through uh, Karen Spencer, through the Titus Two ladies, that you were having a really hard time and here's a meal. I want you to remember when that person comes to your door that Jesus Christ sent that person to be with you. Jesus did. And this isn't just sentimentalism here. This is true. This is scripture. And conversely, when someone is suffering, And we go to that person, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, that when you come to me, when you come to those who are the least of these, people who are in prison, languishing, and he doesn't say whether or not they should be there or not. He doesn't say whether or not they were actually guilty. He says, when someone is languishing in prison and you visit that person, you visited me. When someone is naked and you clothe them, when they're thirsty and you give them something to drink, when they're hungry and you give them food, you have given that food to me. So regardless of the story, regardless of the circumstances, this is an interaction with Jesus. When people come to serve you, Jesus is serving you. And when you go to serve others, you are serving Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. We want to do the Jesus stuff really, really well in our church. We really do. And so I need, I, you need me to be humble and admit that I can't be a part of every story. You need me, and this isn't, this isn't passive-aggressive here. You need me to have the courage as a leader to make sure that you get loved and tended to and not put the pressure on myself to be a part of every crisis. You need me to do that so I can be a good pastor. And we need you as the body of believers. We need you to humbly give us that gift. We need you to humbly accept the love of brothers and sisters who may not have the word pastor in front of their name. We need you to accept that. Clarence, I don't know why I just looked at you when I said that, but I didn't mean that for you. Just, just wanted you to know that. So, uh, I want to talk really briefly. We're going to go ahead and uh, bring this in for a landing. I want to talk briefly about the qualifications for deacons. And we're going to get deeper into this next week. We're going to get deeper into it. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and really Acts chapter 6, there's something fundamental that I wanted to share with you about the ministry of deacons that is huge, that if there's one thing you remember today, I want you to remember this. In Acts chapter 6, when they established the first deacon ministry, this is what the scriptures say happened. Now remember, the deacon ministry was established so that the pastors and elders could continue to pray, study doctrine, and preach and teach God's word. So deacons gave the pastors margin to do that. And here's what happened in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, because of the margin that those pastors had. And the word of God continued to increase. Does anybody want the word of God to continue to increase? Because I'm not happy with, I think, it decreasing in the city of Memphis. I want it to increase in our city. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Memphis, I mean Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, religious leaders who were against the gospel, came, became obedient to the faith. I want that to happen in Memphis. I want that to happen here. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, check this out. After Timothy gives all of the requirements, or Paul, I'm sorry, Paul gives all the requirements to the pastor Timothy about what 
uh, is required, what, what standards are required for a deacon, this is what Paul says. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that. What things did Paul just write? He wrote to Timothy about the qualifications of elders and then of deacons. And he said, I'm writing these things so that. Why does he want good, strong elders and deacons functioning in a church? This is why. So that, verse 15, if I delay in coming, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, I know that we are all Americans raised in a free market culture, and we hate the word behave. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, and then he goes on to elaborate on the household of God that, that, uh, that he's talking about here. Okay, so he says this, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And then he just, Paul can't stop. He begins to get into this, what Brent told me before service, this poetic rambling that he got into. He says this, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Buttress of the truth. Thank you, Mom. Um, <laughs> verse 16. That and uh, what's the other one that I got stumbled on last time? Um, yeah, Ari. When I, I said Ari. Once I said Ari and it was awry. And... At least I don't say height. You're right, Jeremy. So, okay, all right. Um, yeah, but that was one of my low spots in ministry when I said Ari. Um, so, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and whatever of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, when the scriptures speak of the mystery of godliness, it's not a mystery to the church. It's not like we've got something else to figure out. The mystery of godliness, he says, is this, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. The mystery of godliness is that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. The mystery of godliness is that Jesus was seen by angels. The mystery of godliness is that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. And the mystery of godliness is that Jesus was believed on, is believed on in the world, and taken up in glory, vindicated through his resurrection. That is the mystery of godliness. So when we talk about behaving, behaving, this is what we mean in the text. First, here's what we don't mean. That good Christians act this way. That's not what we're talking about here. That's bad teaching. People in church through the ages have heard too many, you should do this and you should be that, without any why. Here's the why. Here's what good behavior in the church is based in. This isn't about acting right. This is about something far greater, my friends. This is about the kind of community that God desires to emerge in our local church. And this community's behavior is totally supernatural. It's not the result of white-knuckling and gritting our teeth. The result of this behavior that exemplifies God, that shows God, is supernatural. It's rooted in the life and the story of Jesus. 
Our lives should amen truth. And he lists a confession, probably an ancient confession that the church all repeated, that, that, that justified text at the end of that verse. It's an ancient confession more than likely. We confess the mystery of godliness that's been revealed to us, the church, so that others can know the mystery of godliness and come to know life, real life in Jesus. Jesus, what Paul is saying, is the source of our godliness, the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. Jesus, who is manifested in a fleshly body. Jesus, who is vindicated in the spirit by the resurrection as the legitimate and acceptable substitutionary sacrifice for all of us who believe. The Jesus who is seen by angels in heaven at the right hand of God. The Jesus who is to be preached to all ethnic groups. The Jesus who is believed on by all of us. And the Jesus who's been taken into glory and who we will join in glory at his second coming. This is the root of all behavior. So when Paul is rolling out the qualifications for a deacon, just a commercial for next Sunday, he's not saying, man, this is the holy few. These are the only ones worthy to serve. What he's saying is this, is that both elders and deacons are models of what it looks like to be captivated by Jesus. What it looks like to be swept up into the story of Jesus. And these models are put in front of us to show us how to live the same way, how to grab the same affections, how to live under the good and godly and merciful and gentle rule of Jesus, the King of the universe. This is why we have a thing called deacons. A lot of churches need to hear that about their deacons. Too often the image of Deacon Fry comes to mind rather than, <laughs> rather than this. If you were raised in the 80s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 227, then amen. Best shows on Saturday night. All right. So just to be clear here, wrap this thing up. Deacons don't relieve pastors and elders of all care. Deacons don't do that. But they do alleviate much of that burden. Otherwise, pastor's primary responsibility, prayer and the preaching of God's word, along with the preparation to do that, will go neglected. And that cannot go neglected. The word of God is the foundation of our church. Deacons, in essence, provide much needed margins for pastors and elders so that we can lead well and make sure you're cared for well. That's what deacons do. Deacons free pastors to work effectively toward the aim that Jesus would become the treasure of every human alive. Next week, we'll continue with this text. But I really, really hope today that if you heard anything from me this morning, it was this, that the reason that God raises up leaders like elders and deacons in a church is so that we can get clearer and clearer pictures of what it looks like to walk in the image of God, what it looks like to love God with our whole heart, mind, body, and strength. This is why you have leaders in the church. And again, it's really convicting because, man, 
at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit could snap his fingers and we all get holy. It could be that easy. But that's not what he does. He calls us all to live together and to live as a community together, getting through life, our bumps and our bruises, just like the Jerusalem church, learning how to navigate through racism and injustice and all that stuff. If you're, lo- if you're looking for a church that doesn't have any of that baggage, you're, looking, you're not looking for a church that exists. Even the most Holy Spirit-filled churches are going to have sin and selfishness and this garbage. And this is why we need leaders to call us to a place of not just holiness and walking right with God, but calling us to a place to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for your people. You are good. You are merciful. And we thank you that you have had mercy on us, sinners. You have had mercy on us. We don't deserve your mercy. And I pray in Jesus' name that every person who is sitting in this place would be captivated by the love, the glory, the beauty, and the majesty of King Jesus. He truly is life. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name.